You are listening to a podcast from The National. Tens of thousands of investment banking jobs are being axed around the world. No, this isn't a rerun of the 2009 financial crisis. Germany's Deutsche Bank is undergoing an $8.3 billion overhaul. It hopes will return it to a growth path of profitability. You're listening to the Business Extra podcast coming from the Nationals newsroom in Abu Dhabi. I'm Mustafa Al-Rawi, Assistant Editor-in-Chief. Now, we'll speak to Alice Hain, our personal finance editor, a little later on about how to manage your money during the summer holidays and, of course, pick up on the Deutsche Bank story. But first, here are some of the other top headlines you need to know about from the national.ae. Strata Manufacturing, a unit of Abu Dhabi's Mubadala investment company, will expand its current facility for the assembly of Boeing 787 plane parts as the Emirate looks to further develop its aerospace capabilities as part of its economic ambitions. Reem Island recorded the most real estate transactions in Abu Dhabi in the first half of 2019, according to official statistics released for the first time as part of a government initiative to boost transparency and provide the private sector with more data for decision making. And banks in the Arabian Gulf are resilient enough and will not need government liquidity support if the regional geopolitical situation escalates on the back of the ongoing US-Iran rift. That's according to S&P Global Ratings. Now, joining me is uh, Chris Nelson, Assistant Business Editor. Chris, how are you? Very well, thanks, Mustafa. Welcome back from your own holidays. Thank you. Um, So, as I was saying, uh, Deutsche Bank this week announced it will shrink its trading activities by 40% as it goes through an unprecedented withdrawal from the equities business, where it's been losing money and lagging behind its rivals. In fixed income, it will also scale back. And in total, about 18,000 jobs, that's 20% of its workforce is going to go. This is, as I said earlier, this is all part of a massive you know, overhaul plan that's going to cost them billions. It's going to result in a loss in the second quarter for them. Mm-hmm. But they are hoping that finally, finally, they can kind of kick the ghost of 2009 because they're still paying the price of not doing the right things after the financial crisis, which is a bit strange given the pain that the rest of the sector has been has, had felt, at least in the initial few years, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, the bank is is uh, is going to post, as you say, a $2.8 billion uh, second quarter loss. Um, and the chief executive, Christian Suing, is also going to shelve the dividend for this year and next, and is taking restructuring charges, as you say, of eight, over 8 billion euros through to 2022 to pay for the overhaul. Um, it, it was kind of like a tsunami of, of doom for uh, for Deutsche Bank uh, uh, staff, uh, really, beginning in Australia, rolling right around the world through Hong Kong, Singapore, further into Asia, right across Europe, and then ending up in, in uh, the US. And it, it must have been pretty tough for, for all of them involved. Um, it was particularly felt in London, I think, uh, which is home to around 7, or was home to around 7,000 of uh, Deutsche Bank's employees and is the hub for... Uh, the lenders investment bank and that's bearing the brunt of most of the uh, most of the cuts and it comes at a very difficult time for the uk financial sector in general um the uh, recruitment specialist morgan stanley uh, in its summer report for this year said there was a 50 percent drop in jobs available in the sector year on year primarily off the back of uh, uh, financial um, companies not hiring with brexit being 
you know, such a um, up in the air uh, situation. Indeed, it said major bank organisations, as well as those from the wider financial services space, have uh, refrained from investing due to lack of clarity, specifically on uh, Brexit negotiations. They said so. Whilst everybody was hit, uh, you know, across across the world, London was particularly badly hit. So there'll be some sore heads there this morning, I should think. Yeah. So I mean, I was listening to some of the uh, the analysis. Um on, on this story and it, on one hand it kind of had echoes um, of of 10 years ago you, you had whole teams being informed when they came into work that you know they needed to go see HR were given sort of a white envelope uh, with the details of their of their severance um, you had pictures of people leaving the offices in London for example carrying the boxes mm-hmm. carrying bags I mean one one picture that stuck with me was of a, a one particular individual we don't know what his job is but he was leaving literally laden with 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 items Items and, and suit bags. He looked like he lost his home yeah. along with his job. Yeah. Um, and people from the windows well, of the Deutsche Bank. They yeah. many might indeed. And and so there's a lot of pain and suffering. A lot of a lot of people losing their jobs at a time when when perhaps it's it, it's even worse. Um, it isn't everybody losing their jobs. Mm. The whole industry, mm. but these guys in particular. Um, but also um, more broadly, it, it's it's a sign of how management can really uh, be the difference between success and failure. I mean, some of the U.S. Uh, investment banks, Goldman Sachs. Mm. JP Morgan, um, City. I mean, you, you, even the Swiss ones like UBS went through a lot of pain in the aftermath of the financial crisis, but now seem to be on much more even mm. keel. Deutsches, from what Alice is saying, have been trying to kick the can down the road um, to see if they can avoid um, you know, taking this pill. Um, Barclays, the other European institution that felt it could compete like Deutsche with the American mm-hmm. Wall Street banks, um, has taken a lot of pain and kind of really changed itself and its culture. And, and some were saying that perhaps uh, Deutsche's woes could mean an opportunity for Barclays now in Europe. Yeah, I mean, it, it could do. I think um, certainly if you, if you look at what's happened to the shares since Monday, um, they've plummeted. So, you know, shareholders in the stock markets are think well, primarily because they're thinking this isn't going to really work. Uh, and the, the, the amount of pain that's going to happen in the first, you know, two, three, maybe four years, maybe longer is going to be so huge that it could prove very damaging indeed. And yeah, that's going to throw up opportunities for the likes of Barclays. I mean, Deutsche is very important for the German economy itself. Um, a very big name there, big employer in Germany. Um, it, it's it's tried different ways to avoid this situation. I mean, cutting eighteen thousand jobs is not insignificant, as, as we've alluded to already. Um, but really, it's it's the, it's it's essentially just sort of giving up on some of the the, the more lucrative investment banking activities, yeah. which is which is really really surprising. Um, I think in in general, uh, we we can say that perhaps broadly most economies are still struggling with some of the consequences of the financial crisis. Certainly the consequences of management in that period. We talk about some of the quantitative easing, the amount of liquidity. Um, we had elections in Greece this week mm-hmm. and elections still grappling, you know, Greece itself still yeah. grappling from its bailouts, its its problems with the, with the economy. And it's just another reminder that, you know, w- w- when you deal with these crises, they tend to continue and continue and continue and, and reverberate for a long time to come. Definitely, so those yeah. entering the investment banking industry will still understand, you you know what that meant ten years ago. Yeah. Mm. Um, I think. I think also with Deutsche, they they kind of 
had aspirations, as, as you alluded to, of, of being the kind of the European Goldman Sachs, and they, ju- they just didn't. I mean, it just hasn't worked out that way, you know. And Goldman Sachs, Goldman Sachs are extremely good at what they do, and um, it was maybe a misjudgment for, for Deutsche Bank um, senior management to assume that they could take them on. Well, it was it was 1999, and uh, we were all more innocent then, Chris. And yeah. We, all of us, can can feel like we thought, you know, we could be masters of the universe. Yeah. Um, let's move on to uh, another big story this week, which was the first budget uh, for Narendra Modi's government in India uh, since they won a landslide re-election earlier this year. Um, but analysts are kind of saying that um, it was a strong budget. Um, from the new finance minister, Nirmala uh, Sitharaman, Mm -hmm. if I'm pronouncing that correctly, Um, but maybe lacking some of the big bang um, things that that they thought maybe would come from a government that's perhaps been viewed as being quite populist. Yeah, I think um, it was a bit of a surprise uh, that she she resisted calls for, you know, a a major financial boost to spur what is a weakening economy. Um, You know, it it posted 5.8% growth in uh, the first three months to March, which is for India, um, you know, quite, quite, uh, quite a lot lower than uh, they'd be used to. Um, her budget kind of it, it drew applause from bond and currency investors, but it left things like credit rating companies, for instance, with mixed feelings. Um, it's going to prove, I think, you know, her primary two primary goals really were to to reduce the budget deficit uh, by keeping spending in check, uh, at the same time um, produce faster growth. Uh, analysts are saying that's going to be very challenging. Um, for instance, uh, Gene Fang at Moody said they expect the economy to grow relatively slowly over the next period. But the fi- new finance minister uh, earlier uh, last week said that uh, growth will probably reach 7% in the current fiscal year, um, uh, which max- matches the, ro- uh, the Reserve Bank of India's projection, um, and higher than last year's 6.8. So she's very confident, but... She may be the, you know, she may be the only one. I mean, there is, I mean, I just take a step aside. There is a track record in India recently of changing the way statistics are compiled to let growth be faster. And even though top line figures, um, it, the growth rate is slowing, but still, I mean, okay, it's not growing as fast as China anymore. It was growing faster than China. It isn't now, um, at least in the first three months of the latest fiscal year. But still, it's still strong growth. But it, I think here is when it comes to the, the, the mismatch between you know, what the, the voters expect or the politicians mm. want to, to convey and, and the reality of, of long-term sustainable growth. They have a plan to 2025. They want to double the size of the Indian economy to around 5 trillion. Mm-hmm. According to Ms. Sitharaman, it's around 3 trillion at the moment. Um, so, you know, the, the in the budget, they plan for something like 5 trillion dirhams of infrastructure spending over the next five years, upgrading the roads. They're creating environment to attract FDI, which all sounds very sensible. In the short run, uh, they're raising duties on fuel, on gold imports, um, taxes for the wealthiest have gone up to help sort of raise the money they need for that spending. Mm-hmm. Um, it may not be sexy, but it sounds like it, they know what they're doing. Mm. Um, yeah, she she's kind of also put the ball back in the central bank's uh, court in a way um, to support support the energy the uh, economy. Um, on the expenditure side, uh, there was also eleven billion dollars was put aside for farmer support, which obviously is a populist uh, a, will be a popular move. Um, and about the same, yeah, that was an important part of the pledges in the in the re-election. Yeah, absolutely. So she she has kind of covered that uh, area. And I mean, eleven billion dollars is a lot of money, obviously. 
Um, and she's also put aside about the same amount um, to uh, as a capital boost for banks, um, particularly the uh, the weaker kind of um, weaker state-owned banks that are that need some support. So she she in resisting this, you know, just, let's just throw money at the problem. I think she she has been as sensible as as is possible. But those twin goals of you know boosting the economic growth to what she is hoping for and narrowing the fiscal deficit, it's going to be difficult. And of course, there's the, the specter of, of trying to create jobs fast enough to meet the young population yeah. that is in need of opportunities. Yeah. Um, I guess we'll, we'll revisit that in the next sort of few months to see to see how the, the top line numbers are doing. Mm. Um, Chris, I know you want to talk about uh, Sir Richard Branson. Um, he his, his out of this world ambitions. Is an interesting report from the Wall Street Journal on what, well, what that could mean. Yeah, and it has been confirmed actually by both companies involved that uh, that um, Branson's uh, Virgin Galactic Space Tourism Company is going to IPO, um, and it will become the world's first listed space tourism venture. Um, it's it's uh, working with so, a, a company called Social Capital Head of Sophia, who I hadn't heard of before. Uh, it's a special purpose acquisition uh, vehicle, and it's plans to invest uh, to invest around about 800 million, or just under three billion dirham. In Virgin Galactic, um, which is, and that will give it a forty-nine percent stake in the company. Um, it's already Virgin Galactic has already raised about a billion dollars uh, since it was founded in uh, fifteen years ago. In fact, um, and Mr. Branson, being Mr. Branson, has uh, said that he plans to be the first commercial passenger on the the craft Spaceship Two, uh, which he says is going to be later this year. Uh, which shows a modicum of confidence. However, that might be undermined by the fact that he wasn't prepared to be the first test passenger uh, when the uh, ship went out to um, the outer reaches of, of the atmosphere earlier this year. But there's a big race on, of course, because um, you know Jeff Bezos uh, and his Blue Origin company are also racing to get into this sphere. Um, so it'll be interesting to see what happens. Um, you know, space tourism has seemed for a long time like a you know, a kind of a, a sci-fi dream, but I'm, they're pretty, pretty determined to, to make it a reality soon, I think. Okay, as mentioned at the top of the show, it's that time of year when the schools are out and many of us are preparing for our summer holidays. That age-old debate about how to manage your money on holiday, at least an age-old debate for me, cash versus cards, and also which currency should you be paying in with your credit cards at the shops when you're outside of the UAE. To help us navigate these issues, as promised, is Alice Hain, our personal finance editor, joining us down the line from Dubai. Alice, hello, and uh, are you going on your holiday soon? I am, Mustafa. I'm actually uh, heading out of the country tomorrow. I'll be getting on a plane and heading back to the UK, which is where I'm from. So in terms of uh, taking money with me, it's not something I worry about too much because I'm going to my home country where I do have bank accounts and I have cards so I can pay in the UK pound and use cards that are tied to those banks there. So I'm not worried about transferring money or paying as a card from the UAE. But 
if uh, if I was going somewhere else or if somebody was going back to their home country and didn't have accounts there, then they do need to think about these things. Um, one one of the, the first things to consider is how you want to take cash with you. So um, you obviously you can just take cash and uh, put it in a suitcase. But remember, when you go out of the airport, there are limits. There's limits in the UAE of about $10,000, I believe, whether you're going in or out. And there also there'll be limits... Um, on how much you can cash in the country that you're going to. So you need to check what those limits are. Um, but obviously carrying a lot of cash around, or if you're, particularly if you're shunting from hotel to hotel, is always a bit of a risk. You've got to consider about money being stolen, and, and it just makes you a little bit more vulnerable. So uh, another option is to use a prepaid currency card. So you can, uh, a lot of banks supply these, and you can load the card up with different currencies, the currency of the place that you're going to, or the places, if you're, if you're going on a multi-stop holiday. Um, or you can um, go to a, a, an exchange house, and some of those also offer prepaid currency cards or prepaid credit cards, they call that. And again, you can load it up with the currency. And what's really good about that is it allows you to lock in the exchange rate at the time of transfer. So instead of worrying about what the exchange rate is when you're making a purchase, you've already sorted that out in, du in Dubai or Abu Dhabi before you've left. You've locked in that rate. The money's in that currency of the country that you're going to, and you just pay with a card. So that, that solves that issue. But if you, if you don't want to take a prepaid card, then there's the whole issue of um, paying at the restaurant or withdrawing cash from a cash machine or paying in a shop. What often happens is that you get asked um, by the shop assistant, or usually the actual machine asks, but the shop assistant will then uh, be prompted to ask you directly whether you want to pay in your local currency, i.e. dirhams for us here, or whether you want to pay in the currency of the country that you're in. And, and this throws people because they always think, oh, maybe I should pay my local currency because that means that I... I'm paying at the same rate, and I know what I'm paying now, and so I know that I'm paying X number of dirhams. Let's do that. But in actual fact, you need to do exactly the opposite, and I must urge you to, to remember this. Always opt for the local currency. And, and, and I expect your next question will be why, um, and this is because um, when you are paying in dirhams in, and, and you're overseas, you're actually going to be paying an invisible fee. And, and what that is is that they are the merchant that you're buying from will do the exchange on your behalf, and they can charge whatever fee they want, really, within reason. There are some limits, and it can be anything from 3 to more than 12% to your bill. So it means you're getting a really bad exchange rate. And this is called dynamic currency conversion, which means you've allowed the foreign merchant to set the exchange rate rather than your own bank. So as much as we don't always want to trust our own banks, your own bank is probably going to be kinder to you. Um, at, at the end, when you get your, your credit card bill the exchange rate will be mentioned in the credit yes, card bill as to what exactly. ultimately is. So you don't have visibility on what your ultimate uh, amount is for that item or that meal that you paid for. But the difference is the exchange rate is likely to be uh, much more in your favor as a result. But I mean, just to say, we, we've talked about this a lot. Whenever you use your cards outside of the UAE, and sometimes even inside the UAE, if it's a foreign currency transaction, there's a fee involved. So yes. you know, even if you think you're getting a deal on an item of clothing or a gift, also factor in that using your card, which is why I guess in the end, if you can keep it safe, 
cash is king, there's always a fee with the cards. Yes. Right? Yes, you've got a foreign currency conversion fee to consider as well. Um, so in the past, Emirates MBD has told us that their customers pay 1.84% as a foreign currency conversion fee to make a non-dirham payment. So if you're using, you know, let's say I'm in the US and I make a, a dollar payment, that would be uh, the fee that I'd be set. Now, if you actually pay, this is where it gets confusing again, if you paid in dirhams, the uh, foreign currency conversion fee is, is slightly lower, 1.15%, according to Emirates MBD. But you've still got to think about those processing fees that are coming from the merchant and the fact that they could be giving you a really bad exchange rate. So I would really err on the side of caution and stick with the currency of the country you're in. That is the country... That's the currency that you want to stick with. That's the currency that you're going to get the best rate on. Okay, so just to just to underline that to, for, for those who are listening, for peace of mind, if you're using your cards outside of the UAE when you're on holiday um, and you're asked... Do you want to pay in your home currency or in the current local currency, the place you're in? Always pay in the current local currency and let your card issuer do the conversion when you get your bill later. So that's yeah. that's definitive. Um, yeah. So you, you had a piece in the money section this week um, also talking about another thing to consider, which is travel insurance. Um, according to surveys, um, most people don't take out travel insurance, not unlike other forms of insurance that, that people, unless they're obligated to, like motor insurance, tend to say, I'm not going to spend that money um, now. But but your piece had, had laid out uh, some compelling reasons why travel insurance is something to think about. Yes, unfortunately, it's, it's something that comes up again and again in the personal finance world. People don't take out travel insurance. They think, well, you know, I'm pretty healthy. I'll be fine. Nothing's going to go wrong. I'm not going to lose my bags. I mean, I've traveled a million times. It's always going to be fine. And it's always the big if. You know, that's the whole point of insurance, isn't it? You're, you're insuring the never-never. But the problem is things do go wrong. Um, and the case study that was in our piece this week is a couple who's uh, – this particular lady's parents were traveling from India through Dubai and into the U.S., and she got ill on the trip. Uh, she was, um, And the couple ended up paying about 10,000 dirhams in bills because she just didn't have the insurance. And by the time they realized that she was ill and they then tried to get insurance, it was too late because um, the insurance company said, well, we won't cover pre-existing conditions. If you're already ill, you can't suddenly get a policy because you're not going to be covered. Um, now, if you've left the UAE and you've forgotten to set your insurance up before you go, I did this last year, actually. I forgot to set it up, and I, I, was, I was already in, I was traveling through three different countries, and in the middle country, I was like, oh, gosh, I haven't got any insurance. So I used a company called World Nomads to allow you to book once you're traveling. What they do have is a, a sort of a time lapse where you're not covered, because at the end of the day, you could book a policy and then go to hospital the next day. So I think there was like a week gap in between where I wasn't covered. And they wouldn't, again, wouldn't cover pre-existing conditions if I was already ill. But it, it, it's just that that's the medical side. The other thing it's about the medical side is that you've got to remember that a lot of us have um, health insurance through our employers. And uh, some people have very generous uh, insurance, so you might already be covered. You might be covered globally if you're very lucky. You might be covered in your home country. You might be covered for emergencies. So just check what your employer already provides. You might not need medical cover um, from, you know, to get a separate policy. And also, uh, employers' um, insurance can be so good that it also covers just travel in general and losing your baggage and flight delays and all the other things that happen on holiday. Because it's not just about getting sick. It's also about 
losing stuff, having stuff stolen, you know, you, or things being delayed so you don't get to the big event that you were meant to go to and you had to pay more to get another flight. All those kinds of things happen and insurance protects you from those. So you really want to consider all of those issues that might pop up. Uh, when you go on holiday. Yeah, so I, I have also household contents insurance that covers my my important documents like my passport if it gets stolen or lost, as well as you know other things, a certain amount of cash, items. So th- that'll cover me there. And I think my employer's health insurance will cover emergencies um, pretty much wherever I'm in the world except for the US. Um, but it's the things like the lost bags in the middle of it or the delays um, should you be stuck somewhere because because your flight is cancelled. That that stuff is, is very difficult to get back from other forms of insurance if you don't get it from travel. Um, so, um, you know, the, that's something to, to work through as well. Yeah, and also just make sure that you know, if things do go wrong and you've got bills, A, that you make a claim within a, as quickly as you possibly can because some, you know, again, with policies, you've always got to read the fine print because with some of them, if you haven't let them know within a time period, let's say 72 hours, then they won't cover the claim. And also, you want to make sure you've got receipts for everything. So if you've had to buy an extra flight or something's gone wrong and you've got to pay for something else, then make sure you've got all the receipts and to, to cover yourself and uh, and just so that you're completely protected because at the end of the day, insurers will only pay out if you make a claim that's within their terms and conditions. Uh, so you're helping us to be prepared then. Uh, we don't want people going off on holiday and feeling anxious. Um, just uh, do your research beforehand. Um, also, uh, something to think about as well, Alice, you were saying before we started this conversation, uh, people need to be thinking about what's going on at home when they're away so they don't have to worry. Exactly, because unfortunately, you know, when we go on holiday, we do forget about the real world and what actually goes on in our lives on a day-to-day basis. So my absolute top tip would be to have contents insurance. Well done, Mr. For you've already got that in place. And what that protects you from is that anything going wrong in your house uh, while you're away. So let's say there's a faulty plug and it sparks and there's a fire in your house, then your contents are going to be covered um these things happen and they happen here you know we do hear about them um i've heard about a couple whose uh, one car set alight the other car and then the entire villa burnt down sounds like a nightmare but if you don't have any contents insurance it's an absolute disaster um so there's that issue and the other thing to really consider is your bills have you paid your bills have you paid your electricity bill have you paid your phone bills all of those things need to be paid. If, if you don't make payments on time, then you'll get cut off. And that's not something you want to come back and deal with when you're trying to get your life back up and running after a wonderful holiday. And also your credit card. Have you paid your credit card? Some of us, you know, if you, I have a credit card with the same bank that I bank with, so I can pay it online. But a lot of people have credit cards with other banks, and they have to physically go into a, a terminal to pay it a an ATM to pay it from there or go into a branch to pay it from there. So have you considered how you're going to pay that bill while you're away? Can you get someone to pay it in your absence? Can you go into the bank and ask them to take an amount in lieu of that payment? So you've got to think about all of those things so that you're also covering what's going on here as well as what's going on on your wonderful holiday. Well, I'm wishing you a very wonderful holiday, Alice. Thanks so much for all that. Um, And uh, I'm sure we'll be having you back on the podcast uh, when you're back in the UAE. Okay, thank you very much.
thank you to Chris for being with us. Thanks, Chris. That's a pleasure, Mustafa. Uh, if you've enjoyed the show, please do subscribe on Apple Podcasts or any platform that you're listening on. Uh, leave a review, a good one. Thank you. Um, and all that remains is to say thank you to our producer, Aisha Khan, and you all for listening. Uh, do join us again next time. <laughs>